Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about something that research suggests impacts more than 40% of those living in the United States. And as the pandemic continues and brings with it more isolation, it's something that most people I speak with seem to feel every day. I'm talking about loneliness, and we have a guest who will share with us about loneliness today, and it's also the subject of his new book. My friend Ben Higgins is best known from season 20 of The Bachelor, but more importantly, Ben is deeply passionate about his faith, his hope for humanity, and his love of sports. In 2017, Ben co-founded Generous International. It is a for-purpose company dedicated to contributing profits to social issues around the world. And most recently, he hosts an IGTV series titled Hope Still Wins. And he's also the co-host of the almost famous podcast along with Ashley Iaconetti. And his new book, uh, new and first book actually releases today. It's titled Alone in Plain Sight, Searching for Connection, when you are seen by not, but not known. Ben, my friend, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Man, pumped to be here. Nice job on Ashley Iconetti. I, you might be the, the first person to ever pronounce that last name right. That was imp- <laughs> I was waiting for that one. Good. Well, when you have a last name that most people butcher, you take some time <laughs> to figure out last names, and I don't know, maybe it's in the, it's in the genes. But, um, well, dude, thrilled that you're here. Yeah. Um, and first off, as the title of your book suggests, you are in plain sight. You are seen by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And because of your work, a lot of people probably feel like they know who you are, or you even talk about this a bit in the book. They might project things onto you. But what do you want our listeners to know about you, Ben Higgins? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Um, well, seven, uh, six years ago, actually, uh, I was just in Denver. Um, hanging out. And then all of a sudden, you know, I find myself on a television show that tens of millions of people watch. And, uh, you know, then a million so people follow you on social media. And they watch like one of the most intimate parts of your life, like your romantic uh, pursuits on TV. And they, you know, see glimpses of you and they start to uh, think they know you. And and a lot of people do, right? I think uh, a lot of people watching the show probably do know me fairly well, maybe better than most. Um, But what I really want people to know about me uh, is that through all those things, I've picked up some nuggets of information in my own life, Mm. Um, like that that fame isn't fulfilling, Um, that uh, we all have our insecurities and our stories and our doubts and our questions, and that for me personally, you know, for a lot of my life, I felt like the outsider, and that's where this book Mm. comes in. Um, I think for a lot for years of my life after the show, especially people kind of dismissed it when I would say, Hey, no, I feel, uh, like the outsider or I feel, uh, unlikable or unlovable or, um, not connected. And they go, no, come on. That can't make sense. You, you're on a show <laughs> and you'd want to scream and say, no, this is how I feel. And so finally, uh, I decided to write this book to start to try to, for my, myself, even personally, to start to try to put the pieces of the puzzle together to make sense of why I feel this way today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so you just talked about uh, feeling like an outsider, mm-hmm. which again, like you said, most people would be surprised by that. Um, and you talk about this this idea, like you're someone who felt like you didn't fit in. So can you even talk more about that? Yeah. So I, I, the best way, I guess, to explain it for maybe anybody out there listening or um, would be in, in most social circumstances or even one-on-ones, uh, times with people, I would just feel like uh, I had to put up, uh, I, I'll say a front, 
or I had to be a chameleon to the situation to try to adjust to whatever was going on at the time just so I could be accepted in it. So mm. as a result, I was never able to truly, truly be myself. So I would know personally and, and, and internally that, hey, nobody really knows me. And I'm worried if they really did know me, they wouldn't like me because what they like me for is who I am around them. Uh, you know, it didn't mean I was changing my, you know, my massive uh, moral uh, stances or my value system. What I would change is maybe just the way I'd respond to something or my opinions or the, the way I'd want to connect with somebody or the questions I would ask. I'd hold those back because I was worried that if I went too far, if I engaged too deep, that they would want to pull away. And this mm -hmm. was, an, uh, you know, an insecurity I held with me uh, still to this day for a lot of my life. Now I recognize it and so I'm able to confront it. Yeah. Um, but for years, I wasn't able to recognize it. I would just do it. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I don't know where it comes from necessarily. Uh, I, you know, I'm an only child uh, from a very uh, small town in Indiana. Uh, you know, I, I went on to university and had my world rocked in, in many different ways, as many people do. Moved out to Denver and kind of been alone. I'm alone without friends or really any connection to anybody for a, a year and a half of my life. And I found myself during that time just kind of wondering and thinking like, you know, I, I, I do, especially when I was out here in Denver, like I don't know if anybody really knows me. Mm. And I don't know if I really want to make friends out here uh, because I'm not ready to walk through that again. I don't, I don't want to try to make friends because I don't even know who I am. Mm. Interesting. Hey, you, you, you write about how you, you talked about this uh, on the show mm -hmm. and you were surprised and, and kind of even uh, taken back by how many people reached out to you. You talked about how people would approach you in public where they messaged you about how many people feel the same way, that they're, they feel alone, they feel like they can't be their true selves or maybe um, they have to hide or be a chameleon to use the word that you used. Mm -hmm. And you, you wrote the words, I felt like I stumbled onto something. And I'm curious, in your many conversations, what have you learned from other people who feel the same way you do? Yeah, it's, it was one of the, the greatest moments of my life was admitting, you know, uh, that I felt like the outsider. I felt unlovable on national TV. Mm. Because when I said it, I, being vulnerable wasn't something that I was accustomed to. There wasn't a lot of moments in my life that I had to be vulnerable with others. Uh, but on national TV, especially on a show like The Bachelor, it forces you to be vulnerable mm. uh, and be vulnerable very quickly. So I share this, you know, thing that I'm learning about myself through the process of the show and through starting to recognize what, you know, my themes in my life and say, I'm, I feel unlovable. I feel like the outsider. And so I get off the show and it airs and I do, I start to get all these messages uh, from other people who feel that way, from other people who feel like they don't fit in. And it's interesting because during that time I had grown up and I had always gone in social circumstances thinking that I was the only one that felt like the outsider. Right. That yeah, I was the only one, I, I say in the book, but it, like, the best picture I have is like, I'm the only one that wasn't invited into the party. And so I'm looking through the window at everybody in there celebrating together. And I'm the one on the outside going, I wasn't invited. I'm not, I'm not a part of the group. And so through these conversations with the people who've reached out to me, uh, I, you know, the, the theme that I've recognized uh, is that most people feel like the outsider because they've fallen short of expectations of others mm. um, or there's been some type of, of hurt or trauma in their life from close relationships that have caused them to uh, not trust and as a result then slowly but surely pull away from, from others um, or uh, that they're ashamed of something they've decided to do in the past. And so that shame 
haunts them yeah. in, in every relationship, in every conversation of every day. And that shame, even though they don't recognize that that's where their insecurity is coming from, that shame and that guilt uh, continue to push them into a place where they don't want to connect. Because yeah. ultimately, if they connect, and then when you connect, there's vulnerability, there's going to be a moment where you have to tell somebody probably that, uh, you know, of the decision that you've made that's added to that shame. And people get scared because they think others will run. Um, hmm. Which I think might even go, you could probably point that back to the mistrust that, you yeah. know, when you would admit your shame, somebody wouldn't look at you and say, I love you too. Yeah. Yeah. Brene Brown speaks about this that shame is if you knew what I knew about me, you, yeah. you wouldn't love me. You would yeah. find me unlovable. Yeah. And My, so that's what, that's what it seems like you're discovering. Yeah. It's interesting because as I wrote the book, there's a, a conversation I had with a buddy in college who was completely different from me. Uh, came from a completely different background and different family and great guy, super charismatic. Everybody loved him. And we're in the car one day and we're talking about life and he's talking about my faith and like, you know, kind of how I organized my life at the time and how I think he made the comment that said, you have been, you're so pure. It's like, well, you don't want to hear that as a college dude. Like, <laughs> not for me. Come on. And I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, Ben, if you knew my thoughts, you would not like me. Yeah. And it hit me at that moment. Like there was that, I don't know why that conversation itself stood out to me so much, but it was my buddy who I loved and who I had known for years admitting to me that if I knew what went on in his mind, I wouldn't like him. Well, you know what it ultimately did? Is when he said that, it allowed me to feel a little bit better about my own internal thoughts. Yeah. To know that somebody else is haunted by things inside of them, guilt, shame, whatever, or just your thoughts. So where I said, hey, I'm not alone in the fact that like, oftentimes I don't like myself. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is the first time somebody had admitted to me that, hey, kind of like, just like you said with Brene Brown is, if you knew it went on inside of me, you wouldn't like me. Yeah. Like that's, that to me just made me feel more connected to him, less alone. When you were, when you were talking about that, there's a, it reminded me of a quote from a guy with the best last name ever. So you already talked about Ashley. Uh, his name is Edward Skillabeeks. Oh, wow. I know. You yeah. should see the way it's spelled. <laughs> uh, he's a Belgian Catholic theologian. And he says something like, this is not a direct quote. He said, if Jesus sat at your dining room table tonight and knew everything or every secret about you, even those unknown to yourself, it would still be impossible for you to feel shame in his presence. Hmm. It's like one of my favorite wow. quotes. Yeah. Believing it is a whole, yeah. is like a whole different thing, right? Yeah. Believing and acting on it and allowing it to be a part of your everyday breath and movement and life is a whole different thing. But like, you know, how beautiful is that? Yeah. Yeah. Man. That's just the intro. Like we've, yeah, we've just talked about the introduction to your book. <laughs> wow. Well, it's, uh, man, I'll tell you this. To, to, you know, this book was a journal at first of mine, um, trying to get my thoughts on paper, hmm. uh, especially coming off the show. Uh, you know, you go through a pretty dark period where you're like on magazines and everybody's talking about you. And then all of a sudden there's the next guy the next year. And a lot of people out there that listen to this don't know The Bachelor, and that's fine. But what I, what I felt was this immediate fame and oh. being famous and this immediate then letdown when being famous started to fade. Yeah. And I'd grown up thinking that, like, if I could only be cooler, I would be liked. Yeah. If I could only uh, have a story to tell, then people would be interested in me. Well, I had my story to tell. I was The Bachelor. Yeah. Uh, but then that starts to fade. And so I started to write down my thoughts because it got pretty dark. Hmm. And the one thing that came and, and why this book really started to come together was I realized that uh, that being famous wasn't fulfilling. 
and hiding myself from the world wasn't at all a, a life pursuit that I wanted. Yeah. And so this book started as a journal and uh, it turned into what it is today. And, you know, I'm just, I'm so excited to be talking about it. And, and I imagine like being replaced. That's not the word you use. That's the word I'm using. Oh, yeah, um, it's the right word to use. Yeah. It's, that just, that just compounds the feeling of like, I, I, I can't be liked. I'm only liked because I'm something else. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, man. Or, hey, I'm only liked because uh, ABC decided to make you look really good. <laughs> like, that's even worse, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, because that's true. Like, it's, it just kind of compounds on your already, uh, your already spoken insecurity is where it's like, you know, I was lucky enough to have a really good experience on that. Um, where my, you know, I was able to come off pretty unscathed and, and things had worked out for me. Um, but when, when, you know, when we go back to my personal experience and, and within myself, it's, man, I, the whole time I was living a lie. Like, I'm mm. not that dude, you know, yeah. I'm not the guy that can stand up in front of a group of people and guide and direct them and say the right things and share with, no, like that was the show took just bits and pieces of that experience and made me look really great. And that's awesome. I'm glad they did. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't make me feel any more loved, mm. any more accepted. Uh, or any more valuable. And I think that's where I sit today is just knowing that none of that ever made my life uh, at all complete. Interesting. Jim Carrey said, mm. I wish everyone could have wealth and fame so, only so that they could realize it doesn't pay off. It's, it's might be one yeah. of my, it, it might be my favorite quote. Yeah. It's so true. And, and like, you know, you can scream it from the rooftops, but in some, until somebody experiences, I don't know if you'll learn it, just like most things in life. And I experienced it, and I had to learn that. Yeah, uh, is where you know I always wanted to be the best at whatever I did. Uh, I always wanted to be known and liked and loved by all. Uh, and uh, I had a moment in time where it kind of felt that way, yet it wasn't fulfilling. Yeah. So the question that really launches from there was, there has to be more, mm. or there has to be a better answer. Yeah. Because um, if not. Uh, that's, and this is where the book started, and that's where the dark place started was there has to be more, there has to be a better answer, because if not, I am lost at sea, and I'm going to drown. Yeah. So interesting. Like you said, you could scream it, and yet I look at our culture that just continues to promote it, mm. that this, this is what's going to make you happy. But one of the, you start the book um, by, by telling stories about people who in many ways, I've, I've kind of gone the opposite of the fame and, and the wealth and the power and the influence, and yet they're the people who've influenced you the most. Yeah. One of those people is a young woman named Annie who, when you met, um, she was dying of cystic fibrosis, and you, you, you share your text conversation with her, but one of the, uh, the last thing you shared about the text conversation was she wrote these words, dying doesn't have to be scary, it can be beautiful. And when I read those, the, they struck me for two reasons. First, our culture is so death-denying. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we don't even want to be old. And yeah. so we just, you know, pump ourselves full of all sorts of stuff and tighten our skin and everything else. Um, it, but even more so, Jesus' chief invitation to his followers is to die. Like when he says, pick up your cross and follow me, that was a pretty literal image for, for these followers who had seen crucifixions by the Romans nonstop. And so I think about that quote, dying doesn't have to be scary, it can be beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, what, what did her words do to you when you read those? Uh, rocked me personally. 
Mm. I tried in the book to to communicate my own personal feelings and experiences, um, but not take away from the truths that these people I was interviewing were sharing. Because as you read later on the book, I have this deep fear of death. Like that death, in a sense, has haunted me. I'm confused by it. Mm. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty there. I don't like uncertainty. And so I share that later on the book. So when I read these words from Annie, and this is her message to me, and so a little backstory is, uh, Annie was a fan of the show, wanted a little video sent to her, or her friends gathered this video of all these celebrities, uh, Taylor Swift and the Kardashians, and then they asked me to do it, um, to send her this video as she was in the hospital, and she knew she only had three weeks to live. She uh, had had two lung transplants. Um, she was denied the third, and so she knew that her time was running short. Um, so she's sitting in her hospital bed, and her friends asked for this video. I sent the video, and then something weird, just those, you know, that weird, like, in my soul, my gut was just like, ah, you can't leave that there. I'm interested. What, what's going on here? So I reached out to her friend. I said, hey, can I talk to Annie? And she said, yeah, Annie would love to talk to you. And so we texted back and forth for probably about a week and a half before she passed. Mm. Um, and her insights and her wisdom and the way she was viewing the world, why, I mean, and the fact that she was giving up any amount of her last minutes on earth to text with me yeah. was something that I took to be very sacred and very special. And so then as she finishes that text conversation with, you know, uh, dying doesn't have to be scary. It can be beautiful. It, uh, it confronted my, an, another one of my fears. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this wisdom from somebody who is facing death. What it did was it helped me understand that I'm facing death as well. And I wanted to know why. We talked about it a little bit, but I want to know why she could see death as beautiful. Like why she knows that, you know, she's confronting it, and yet she still sees it as something that is, uh, I don't know if exciting would be the right world, but but is beautiful, is sacred, is special. And um, and, and on, honestly, ever since then, the rest of the book, you I don't know if you could tell because it was so early on, but the rest of the book kind of had a different vibe to it. Mm. Um, the rest of the book, was written with a different language than what my journal maybe was um, because of that last sentence. It, and, and my desire and my need to confront truth, which the truth was that we're all dying. Yeah. There's a um, depth psychologist. He's a wilderness-based depth psychologist. He actually operates out of Durango here in Colorado named Bill Plotkin. And he talks a lot about the initiatory rights of indigenous groups historically where especially young men had to be introduced to death at a young age so that they could, in turn, re serve the village, serve the world. Mm. Um, because for so many men especially, um, there's this idea of we're, we're going to conquer it, we're going to control it, we're going to win, we're going to get to the top, and that the, the, the descent to death is actually the place where life is found. It's the, the paradox or the mystery. Yeah. And it's really what we see in the life of Jesus who, you know, Paul says, what is it? Uh, he doesn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. It's the path of descent. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, is that some of the, the struggle that you encountered when you met Annie, who, by the way, she was what, early 20s? Yeah, yeah, she was um, 24. Okay. Was that some of it, of like this idea? And I say that from the standpoint, not many men in the United States or even the Western world, we're not introduced to death at a young age. Yeah. We're told to go get it. We're told to win. We're told to achieve. We're told to climb the ladder. Mm. But do you think maybe that was that some of the struggle you had with those words? Yeah, it was. It, and also my own personal experiences, which in the book is my dad, you know, I had to see him 
he should have, he's still here today. He should have died uh, three different times within my high school years yeah. where, you know, he was on his deathbed, um, has, you know, is still living today. But I had to confront death. Uh, mm. It's it's symbolic to me because my dad, every time he went into the hospital, would hand me this blue folder. And the blue folder had all of his financials and all of his insurance information for my mom and I and everything we needed, all the passcodes, everything. And he would hand it to me before he went into surgery every time. Oh, my goodness. And so that symbolism of handing me the blue folder, but also seeing my dad, in a sense, like, understand that he could that he was he was dying. Yeah. Um, and accept it and I think help me understand at an early age like that those moments matter that that in a sense was the pinnacle weirdly oddly of of his life was that moment where he could look at me and say son I love you and if these are like I if these are the last words I ever get to share like I want to tell your mom and you that I love you mm. and here is my you know here's my gift to you it's all organized it's yeah. all here um so I say that to go back to the to the Annie thing is those her conversation, our conversation reminded me of that moment. Yeah. Um, and so it brought back some trauma and some fear, but it also reminded me that, that as I talked to Annie and she was expressing the beauty of what she was about to enter into, um, there was a ton of purpose in those words in that moment. Yeah. And so maybe that is kind of the, the scent is, is seeing that on our deathbeds, uh, on the on the path towards death, in a sense, is which we're all on, that we're all going to die. It's one thing we have in common, uh, is that on that path, it can be beautiful. It doesn't have to be scary, but it, there's also a lot of value and purpose in it. Yeah. And I think just confronting that, right? The book starts out, and the book isn't this heavy for all. It was heavy for me at first. It's not this heavy the whole time. We start out the book with, like, paralysis, terminal illness, and then death. Yeah. But... I wanted this book to start with a lot of truth and a lot of hard truth, but a lot of truth that should confront us all and we should all understand and process our lives through. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think talking to Annie and hearing this helps, like I said, set the stage for the rest of this. Uh, and it gave more value and purpose to the words that I was writing down. Yeah. Well, and, and it, it, it points to the fact that what you discovered in, in those relationships with people, which we'll talk about in a bit is, there is, in fact, beauty that, that is born out of, out of these what, seeming tragedies. Mm. Um, doesn't necessarily make them easier or better, but even what you said about your dad, I'm like, oh, that's, that's a beautiful story. Yeah. So there is, there is some beauty there. And, and I said earlier, um, you know, in Jesus' economy, this is what leads to life. It's the, the paradox of the crucifixion, um, that the resurrection has the last word. And you talk about, um, in the next section of your book, you do talk about life and what is living about. And you ask these questions, and I'm quoting from the book. You say, what is this life all about? What makes it worth living? How, how would you answer those questions? What is life all about? What makes it worth living? Well, That's an know, easy one, by the way. You yeah, should get this one, done right? in about 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> You know, to answer that myself, and, and, and if you've seen the book, I ask a lot of these questions. I don't have a lot of answers for them. And I think maybe that's the healthiest way to do this, right, mm -hmm. uh, is to ask the question and allow all of us to go on the journey in the pursuit of trying to figure out the answer. Yeah. Um, it's, it's something that I found valuable in my life, and, and I found when I've tried to give the right answer, oftentimes I'm embarrassed uh, later on because I was wrong. Um, but I would say if I could answer this for me, it would be um, 
life would be about kinship. Um, it would about be about coming into the places with others and with God in relationship um, that's that's connected at a level. It's connected in truth. And I think through the book, what I realize is one of the things we have in common is that we're all going to die and that we've all experienced pain. And I think coming into those things those two things will allow us to connect at a deeper level. And so what makes life worth living? It's connection. And that's a deep connection where you can feel loved, um, where you can feel like you have dignity, where mm-hmm. you can feel like you're in relationship with others. And I can feel the same way. Uh, it, you know, and, and to be truth be told, like I've thrown my eggs in the Jesus basket. Um, I believe in Jesus because of my own personal experiences, but also uh, because of the truth to who Jesus was, how he guided and directed, how he spoke of people. Um, I see that working in this world today, uh, if done well. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I say my life would be worth living um, when, when Jesus is ringing true in my own life. Uh, and I think what Jesus called me to was to love God and love others. And, and I think that means that deep connection I was talking about, mm. built on truth. Yeah. And you mentioned at one point, you talk about the uh, Genesis chapter 2, where the only thing in creation, I don't know if you use these words, but the only thing in creation that God says is not good is for the man to be alone. Mm. No. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Where, where, when you, I hear you talk about this connection. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about that, that idea. Well, I mean, I don't know if there's any worse feeling than feeling lonely or being alone. Um, if you want to like, Still to this day, like if a book or a movie wants to talk about hell and really sh- shake me up, uh, even if like the the concepts of hell I, I I still might not agree with or even understand at any level. But if you still want to like ring a a fundamental chord inside my body from a young age, you talk about me being alone in darkness. Mm. Scary. It's not how we're built. Yeah. Um. And so I think the answer to that is actually pretty simple. You know, you read it. In Genesis, but you also experience it in life. Is that there's not some like deep, uh, difficult answer to this? It's that it, I believe in, in every human. We desire to be connected to something. I think that is I, I've yet to be proven wrong on that. Um, and and so for man to feel alone, I can't imagine a worse feeling than to feel isolated, disconnected, um, lonely dark, scared. And I think that's what, that's what God's talking about is, you know, typically in life when I want to find uh, any ray of truth, uh, you, you get the wisdom from God, but then you have to look around you and see what rings true in the world and, and the people around you. And, and I haven't met anybody that's alone and lonely and that feels like they're thriving. Or mm. that there's joy. Um, it's a dark, dark place. And so, I just think that's one thing we have in common is that nobody really wants to be alone. And I think that's God given. Yeah. And what, what would you say to those listening? I, we, I mean, I said at the very beginning and you, you stated it too in the intro to your book that research shows um, that loneliness is on the rise. There's actually yeah. more writing about it recently um, because of the pandemic, because so many people are feeling isolated and disconnected. Um, and it, 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 it's kind of baffling some researchers because mm-hmm. social media, of course, is is blown up. And yet, even though we're more connected, which is a technological word anyway, mm-hmm. um, 
we feel more disconnected than ever. And what would you say to those listening who, they're listening to you, they're nodding, they're saying okay. yes, but then they're going, but I'm still lonely. Yeah. Uh, well, you're right. The loneliness is on the rise. It's crazy. It's doubled um, since the 80s and, and only getting worse. And I, I guess to, to summarize this whole book, to help somebody out there listening who's nodding, um, is I would, I'd want to start this by saying, if you feel alone, if you feel disconnected, um, you're not alone. That uh, my loneliness and your loneliness actually connect us in this, in this group um, that oftentimes isn't talked about. There's this hidden group out there of all of us who have insecurities, who have fears, who have doubts. So I just mostly want to shout, shout and say, hey, like, if you're hurting, if you're in pain, if you're feeling less than, uh, you're not alone in those feelings. I'd also like to say, uh, and I, I didn't really write this in the book because I can't prove it yet. Um, but I know in my own life, when my friends, my closest relationships, when they have something uh, really good to happen to them, I love to celebrate them. Mm -hmm. That's something I like to do. It's fun, right? You want to see your friends and the, your loved ones, your family and strangers thrive. I mean, I hope to get to that place where that's a consistent theme in my life, where I want to see them thrive. Um, but, I, but in my celebrating of their joys and their successes, it, it doesn't even come close to the connection I get when I sit with them in their deepest troubles and pains and sorrows. There's a deeper connection that happens when, we, when I sit beside my friends who are hurting and I tell them that they're not alone and that I'm in it with them, then there is whenever they come to me and say, hey, I just got a promotion. And I'm like, let's go out for drinks. Right. You know, that, that's great. But there's something deep to pain. There's something deeply connecting to pain. And so if anybody's out there saying, hey, I still feel alone. I still feel disconnected. I think the path to helping connect again is to start admitting those deep feelings inside of you, to start expressing it. Because I know when I did, there's a whole group of people that came around me who said, I feel the same way. And this is my experience. And this is why I feel this way. Mm. And they allowed me the space and to share my experiences, why I feel this way. And it became this really beautiful kind of dance of all of us sharing that, wait, we're, we're not alone. If anything, our, our, our aloneness actually connects us. Yeah. And I think there is something beautiful about that. Yeah. Yeah, suffering produces solidarity. Mm. Um, and I think this is, you, you talked about Jesus a few minutes ago, um, which is fine by me, by the way. Okay, good. Uh, but I think that's the compelling thing, uh, maybe the single most compelling thing about the Jesus story is he, he was acquainted, I mean, the prophet talks about he was acquainted with suffering. Mm. Um, but that he, as the writer of Hebrews says, tried and tested in every way that we are. We don't have a high priest who can't identify with us. He's actually with us in that pain. He's, he's with us in that place. And I wonder, in addition to what you said, because I love that idea, being vulnerable, being vulnerable and honest, which is, takes tremendous courage at any level, um, but also the courage to step toward the pain that we see in, in our culture, in our world. And, and I told you right um, before we hit record, um, one of the things I, I appreciated about the book more than anything was the way you write, and you don't, you don't uh, proclaim this about yourself, but one of the things I see in you is you're, you're continually moving toward hard places. And you talk about Avery, you talk about Annie, who we already talked about. Uh, you talk about Brandon, uh, who you and I both know. Um, 
And, and these are people who've experienced um, terminal illnesses, um, uh, paralysis. You're Generous International. You're, you're investing in places like Honduras who've just been rocked by hurricanes uh, in the last few months. And I see you in your life continuing to go toward these hard places that a lot of people would avoid, not because... Well, I'm not going to assess why they would or wouldn't. Maybe it's they don't know what to say or do or how to approach these things. We talked uh, when you came in uh, about homelessness. Um, So what is it about you that draws you toward these difficult situations, these difficult places? Um, And and how would you, what what would you say to someone like me who maybe, I I, I might become a little uncomfortable with that. Yeah, well. Uh, at the beginning, uh, you said, you know, this is going to get somewhere, but you talked about <laughs> social media. And one of the things that I'm noticing in my life and my friend's life is, uh, you know, social media is a snapshot of all really awesome things that we could do in this world, <laughs> really great pictures of ourselves. Uh, and what it does is it kind of filters us um, from the realities that are existing behind the screen. And the other thing is when we start experiencing pain or suffering, uh, what social media allows us to do is to never show it, but also to run away from it. Um, Because for me personally, and a lot of people, we can post something and then get really great comments. And that kind of fills that little void that we're, you know, that we're needing for a period of time. It's a little medication to to get us through the next couple hours. But uh, if I were to give advice, which I don't love to do, but if I, I were, did kind of put you on the spot. Like yeah. That. If I were to give <laughs> advice, it would be to run into that pain, as you mentioned, and, uh, and, and sit in it. I just had an employee of mine uh, a couple weeks ago call me, and she was really struggling with some stuff. And she's like, I just don't know how to get through it. I don't know how to, like, forget about it. And I said, I, maybe, and it hit me, maybe you don't need to forget about it. Maybe you don't need to just get through it. Maybe you need to sit in it for a bit. Learn from what's going on. Uh, Richard Rohr talks about it a lot, is sitting in it, contemplating it, meditating on it. Not, not allowing it to overcome you, but to learn what is going on in that moment that allows you to feel so desperate, so mm. alone, so shame, so much guilt, like process through that. I think those moments are good learning opportunities for us. They humble us. They teach us. They allow us to build character and grit. Um, and then the, if the question went to me on, on why I run in those places, I, as you're talking, and this is a super, I, I really am going to hate my answer here. Um, but it really is Jesus. And what I mean by that is I think it's clear to me that Jesus called us to look for those who are hurting. Hmm. Um, I would want somebody then to do the same for me. I would want somebody else out there outside of myself to, when I'm hurting, to look to engage into my life as well. Um, I want to be somebody who continues to invest into the stories of people who need the most, who are hurting the most. And, and yes, we can identify those people as people that live on the streets. We can identify those groups as people who have addictions. We can, we can identify the people of people who have felt disconnected and isolated because of their preferences in life and the, and the things that make them them. But ultimately, I think what, what I'd really want to get to is a place where that just is all of us. Like, yeah. that, yes, I can say I go to Honduras to help those in poverty. I do. Um, it's my career. But ultimately, uh, how I want to look at it is, no, I just do that because it was a place that broke my heart at an early age, and I would do that for my neighbor if he needed it tomorrow. 
Um, it's just kind of a lifestyle. Yeah. And I only do that because of Jesus calling me into that. Um, it, it would be a lot easier for me not to be going to Honduras. I mean, I've gotten two parasites down there. It's not fun sometimes. I love Honduras. I love the people, but it'd be a lot easier to sit in my house here in the U.S. and hang out and not think about it, not think about the fact that people are uh, starving and, and going without water and going without um, clothes or shelter. Uh, but, but there's something holy and there's something sacred in the moments where you sit with somebody across from them as they're suffering and say, I'm here for you. Mm. I'm not going to leave you. We're in this together. I'd also say it's the moments that bring me the most value. It's the moments that remind me that there is a God, that that God, is, you know, it reminds me that, that God cares about um, how people view themselves, that he loves them, that he wants us to love them. Um, when you sit across from somebody who doesn't have clean water or clean food and, and you bring them those things, but you sit beside and say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here next week and next year, and I'm not leaving you because I love you. Um, God shows up. It's a, it's a, and when you know of a God who speaks of love and then you get to experience those moments, um, you can't tell me that there isn't a God that exists. Mm. And so I do it selfishly for that, um, but I also just do it because I believe that's what we're called into, and I, and I still believe in Jesus, and so I want to try to follow those things. Yeah. So now that you've given the answer, do you still hate it? Uh, I, I hate the <laughs> beginning of the answer. I really dislike the, well, because of Jesus' answer. Yeah. Um, I, because I think oftentimes it falls short. And I think oftentimes it's been used for really bad answers. <laughs> um, but I believe yeah. that I believe that if I could stand on one thing right now, it would be that God has called us to love others and love God. Yeah. And so anything that falls within that that pair that that bucket for me, I can put Jesus' name behind. Yeah. Fairly confidently. Yeah, I asked you, do you still hate it? Because I actually found it refreshing. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I have like a million quotes in my head, but one of which is following Jesus is really simple, but incredibly difficult. And what we've done with religion has made it really complex and really easy. Mm. Um, and so the idea, well, I do this because I see Jesus doing it. That's a really simple answer. And it's a darn good one <laughs> at some level. Yeah. The other, the other quotes in my head, you mentioned Roar earlier. I think it was him that said, Jesus never said, worship me. He said, follow me yeah. or imitate me. Yeah. And we've chosen to worship him because the following is too difficult. Mm. Um, and so the reason I say it's refreshing is I love when people are like, well, I don't know, I follow Jesus. This is what I see him doing, so I'm doing my best to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it's kind of a simple answer. And it, to your point, it can feel trite, right? But mm -hmm. um, it's and also, it can also be It can feel, in today's age, very self-promoting. Uh, yeah. Well, because I want to be like Jesus. You know, that that saying oftentimes now is, has a, a ton of uh, hurt with it, really. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, I want to discipline you because I want you to be more like Jesus, or I want you to follow these rules, right? No, what I'm trying to say, I guess, and within this is, uh, I see Jesus modeling this. Mm -hmm. I see him calling us to this. I see people out there, I mean, right outside of where we're sitting right now, people who are hurting. Mm -hmm. um, I see, I know myself, and I know I am hurting at some level different different in different ways but but hurting <clears throat> and jesus called me into that so i know it's true that others are hurting out there and he asks me to care for those to love for those to invest into their stories to show them care, like empathy and and relationship 
And so I want to try to do it, right? Like I said, I, I want to test it out for a bit. And it's just proven true over and over again yeah. that those moments make bring value to this world, mm. um, especially when it's done not for myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, but for for the calling that I have, that I think I have on this world. And I think yeah. we all have. I think we can all sit there, wherever anybody's sitting in today can sit there and go, God has called me to care for those in need. And, and it's my beautiful responsibility to figure out how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's simple. Mm. You know, I mean, it really is. I think it's, uh, but it's, again, it's, it's an incredibly difficult path. Um, the, the uh, you, you, you write about, uh, God. You talk about doubt in the book, mm-hmm. which I, I loved. Um, and you talk about uh, God's not in a box. And it reminded me of a quote that I recently read. Um, and I couldn't, can't for the life of me remember where I read it. So if you're listening and you know, or maybe you said it, we're giving you credit now <laughs> anonymously. Uh, and it says this, the only reason you'll find God in a box is because God wants to be where you are. Yeah. Uh, the only reason you'll find God in a box is because God wants to be where you are. Um, and you spent a whole chapter on how, um, on how often we put God in a box. And you write these words, we keep trying to make God smaller and less mysterious. And, and I wonder, uh, how do you avoid placing God in, our, in, in a box, no matter how big? And I think we all probably do. Um, but how then, too, you use the word less mysterious. And I'm wondering... How are you living in and with the mystery of God? Uh, it's been a really hard transition for me. Uh, I think deconstruction would be the, uh, like the, the common phrase around, but it was like deconstructing old um, fundamental values of what God is and how he operates and how he fits into this world and what I should be doing and not doing. Um, and, and what I realized as I got older is those, those core values were different across different denominations of different belief systems and then also oftentimes they were embarrassing me and falling short when I would try to act on them and that uh, I'd put God in this box and then be proven wrong right I've, I say this like I'm, I'm I'm a Christian but ultimately in my life I want to follow truth wherever it is like that would be my main desire right like uh, I believe in Jesus because I believe that is a tr- it, that that it is true that yeah. it is um, something that is active in this world that Jesus is really loves and cares about us. Like I, if, if at some point somebody could prove me wrong, I would have to follow whatever that thing is that is true. But I sit here today and say, I follow Jesus because I believe it is true. Yeah. Um, and so how I end up though, this has been hard, how I end up not putting God in a box is eliminating what it, the things that I believe I know. Um, is trying to continue to stay curious to the mm. mystery. Um, to try to stay uh, my eyes wide open to what the truth is out there. Now, ultimately, that has always led me back to Jesus. Right. It has. Even at times when I, you know, you don't want it to, it ultimately has always led me back to Jesus. But I, I, I live in this world of a lot of doubt and a lot of questions because I want to stay curious. And I want to stay expectant um, that, the belief that I have in Jesus will show up. Because if there is a God that is personal, that loves, um, that exists in this world in whatever capacity uh, God does, then I'd like to believe that like 
it isn't a lost pursuit that God would show up in moments and allow me to know that there is still a God that is here. And if not, then I want to be on the pursuit of finding it. Yeah. Um, so to, to backtrack, to answer your question simply, it would be I, I've, I live in the mystery because I, I think I try to stay curious to the outcomes and just stay alert and aware of what's happening around me um, because I also believe those are the moments I can see God as well. Yeah. I think it was Aquinas who said, if it's true, it's from the Spirit. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's tempting and, and comforting at some level to believe that faith is just like growing in faith is becoming more and more certain uh, or more, more and more certain of, of what you believe in the sense that like I can prove it mm. um, versus a continuing deep dive into complexity and mystery and darkness and wonder and um, there's a lot of joy there. There's a lot of comfort in the first part of what you said though, right? If it was simple and if it was clear all the time and that we could set up these rules and these these systems that always rang true and always um, showed God's love and that, you know, it would be comforting. Yeah. Um, and boring. And boring. <laughs> and the, the farther I've gotten my faith journey, and I would like to believe I've, I've tried, you know, I don't, I, uh, is there's been more unknown than known. Yeah. Um, and again, I can only say what's true of my own personal experiences what I, and true of my own life. Um, but the more and more I've grown in my relationship with God, the more and more I've not known, but the more mystery and awe and wonder that's been added to it. I, uh, I really, you know, this book wasn't supposed to be about this. Uh, I had an idea like five years ago. I was sitting down and, uh, with my buddy who's a pastor I was like, so I was, uh, I told him this. I was like, I was like, I was sitting in this, uh, I was riding my bike today. And I thought about this. What makes the, the writers of the books of the Bible different than me? They still followed this God and they were still talking about their personal experiences. They still had doubt, doubt and fear. So why couldn't there be a book of Ben in the Bible? Now that's my ego talking, a right? A book yeah. of Ben. Yeah. Well, that's my ego talking. We're going to look like, at second right, Benjamins. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what it's led to now as I've like, matured in this is just knowing that like the stories of these the the, the stories of the bible uh, aren't a lot different than me that they're people struggling with their doubts their fears their frustrations their confusions um their bad decisions and good decisions but ultimately their pursuit of greater meaning greater value of something true of something wondrous of something mysterious yeah um so that's why alone in plain sight got written the way it did is because it would it's my take on what I'm seeing, because the, the, I can only speak to what's true in my own life. And I know that as I've lived in more wonder and awe, um, life hasn't made more sense, but it's became more beautiful. Yeah. Um, sometimes less comforting, um, but more purpose-filled. Uh, less, um, less structured, but more loving. Yeah. And that's all I got right now. I just got my own experience. And that's, and that's where I sit today. And that's why I want to write this, is to say this is where I sit today. I don't know if anybody else will read this and go, I feel the same way. Maybe one person does, and it would be worth it if they did. Um, but I didn't want to cookie cut, the, cut this. I, I didn't want to make it the same book that we've read a thousand times. 
because yeah. my life isn't the same as yours. And, and I just want to open up the door to say, hey, if you're struggling, if you're feeling doubt, but you really love God, and you want to see meaning and purpose in others and in your own life, then I want to write this book for you to, sit, to know that you're not alone in that. Yeah. Yeah, and I loved where you, where you took it at the end because it wasn't, I mean, you said earlier, you know, you hate to give advice even though I asked you to give advice. Yeah. <laughs> but the, there is this sense of um, in the mystery, what, what you lead us toward is, but we are loved. Um, even in the, mis- the, mysterious, the mystery of God or the divine mystery is um, we're not alone, that there is this, this rootedness. Um, and even hearing you talk about, you know, less certainty, I'm putting words in your mouth a bit, and uh, less certainty and more mystery, that there's joy there. Um, I, I, I liken that to if you go out on a date with somebody and in the first 20 minutes you run out of things to talk about, you're like, ah, this is not going to, this, you know. But I sit here, um, I'm in my 21st year of marriage, and there's still parts of my wife that I'm, I'm curious about, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, she listens to all of these, and I know when I talk like this, she's, she's always like, oh, oh. my gosh, cannot please. <laughs> but there, there's this piece of I have not, I'm still learning the contours of who she is. Yeah. And so had I figured that out in the first half hour that we met, we wouldn't be married for 21 years because that's boring. Hmm. There's an adventure to be had. And if, and if that's true of her, a, a human being, how much more God? Hmm. And there's, there's a lot of joy in that. Man, that's beautiful. You just said something that, um, stri- you know, strikes strikes a chord with me. Is you said there's a venture to be had. Yeah. Um, when you say those words, that's exciting for me. Why? Because um, when there's an adventure, there's a mystery. When there's an adventure, there's something new. When there's an adventure, there's a purpose to it. There's a pursuit. There's value in it. And um, I believe more today than ever uh, that there's an adventure to be had in this world. Yeah. And that we're all called to it, um, that we're all invited into it, um, that it's in front of us. It's within every breath and every second. And I think that's one of the coolest things uh, about a walk on this earth is that there is an adventure to be had. There's a mystery to be un- unfolded. And there's, there's people out there um, that you want to get to know. Yeah. Be it your wife, for the book's sake, be it friendships, be it yourself, be it God. Yeah. If... If there's one thing that you want readers to take away from the book, what would it be? <sighs> um, well, I, for me personally, I, I want them to understand that I have more questions than answers. Mm. That's why I don't give a lot of answers in this book. I also hope that they feel a breath of fresh air and some hope and some joy in the fact that they aren't alone. Um, you know, I'm, this book is meant and written for people who feel alone in plain sight who feel disconnected from themselves, from others, uh, from romance, and from God. Hmm. Um, Those who are single and may always be single, this book is for them. Um, I just, my hope is that somebody picks it up, finishes the book, closes it, and says, and they can take a breath and say, I'm just not alone. Hmm. That's it. that's what this whole thing is for. It's just so somebody out there, one person even, can just know that uh, they have a co-inhabitor in this world who also feels 
alone in plain sight. Love it. Uh, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, well, the best way uh, would be to go benhigginsbook.com for this book. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at higgins.ben or Twitter at benhiggy. I, I think that's with an I at the end, B-E-N-H-I-G-G-I. Can I please just start calling you Higgy? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a good high school nickname. It sticks. Oh. Um, and then also the, the, one of the coolest things you could do for, for me or for anybody is uh, generouscoffee.com. Uh, Generous, as you mentioned, you know, is uh, is a for-purpose company we created years ago, and we donate 100% of our profits to nonprofit and social causes. Um, I don't take a salary off of it. Uh, we only have one person that does, and trust me, she's, you know, she's not living in a mansion, um, even though I hope someday she can. <laughs> um, but uh, the, all of our profits are donated to nonprofit and social causes fighting human injustice around the world. So they're fighting for people. Um, who've been stricken by poverty, uh, lack of clean water infrastructure, you know, as you mentioned, the hurricanes in Honduras, or uh, we do work in the U.S. with uh, homelessness. Um, also, we just finished our Christmas campaign with uh, Prison Fellowship, uh, oh, awesome. which does a really cool program. So, yeah, it's just a, you can buy coffee. It's specialty grade coffee, so it's good coffee. So I'll finish it with this. My, my sales pitch is over. It's if you're gonna I was going to invite you to. I was like, have a commercial. About yeah, Jenner. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And if you're, if you're listening and you're local, you're in Denver, you're – you have a, a shop in Golden. Is it not on Santa Fe anymore? Nope, we had to close. Ah, darn COVID, man. Oh, are you serious? Yeah, I shut down the whole place. Oh, bummer. It was, a, it was a co-op building, and unfortunately, the whole thing is done. So oh. we do still have it. Okay. Golden, Golden's thriving. Um, it's doing really well. Golden, the community of Golden's been awesome. But uh, good. Yeah. Um, just a cool, it's yeah. Drink your coffee from Generous. It, it helps us. And I was going to ask you talk about Riley in the book. Is there anything we can do to support the work that you guys are doing in Honduras as yeah. you continue to rebuild? For, for for a lot of people, it feels like oh that was months ago, but yeah. this is still a, a real thing down there. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, uh, I think uh, I'm going to throw a stat out there, and somebody's going to fact check me on it and prove me wrong. But uh, Honduras, I think, is still is now the second uh, poorest country um, per capita uh in uh this hemisphere uh, i believe that's still true it's in the bottom five for sure yeah yeah um anyways they were struck by two hurricanes back to back right in the same place um and you know obviously with the political situation the media wasn't covering it because there's a lot of other stories going on and so the the aid didn't exactly get to honduras or the central america as typically it does so to help out um, you go to humanityandhopeunited.org, humanityandhopeunited.org, uh, and donate. Uh, we're in the process right now. Uh, you know, a couple of your buddies are helping. You've helped out uh, to get clean water down there. Um, we're rebuilding some of the homes. The cool thing about Humanity and Hope United is um, there's nothing given to the people down there. It's a partnership with them, and so we ask them what they need, what they want, and what they dream of, and then we use our resources and their resources to help them get that so that like culture isn't changed, that there's still dignity that, you know, we're yeah. not the saviors from the U S coming down to say, look what we did. It's, it's a partnership with them to, to help them get back. And unfortunately right now, a lot of these people have lost everything. And mm. so we're helping them get back. And so, um, it, it sounds a little skeezy to say, but right now money is like necessary. Yeah. Aid is definitely necessary too, like some food and stuff, but like we just need to rebuild buildings and, get their businesses back up and going with them, um, schools rebuilt so that, like, life can get back and going again. Yeah. 
Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I was I was going to promote the work that you're doing that uh, people may not be familiar with because it's good work. Uh, thanks, buddy. So, uh, and for those of you listening too, just know that um, the the link to Ben's book, Alone in Plain Sight, and also to Humanity and Hope and the Generous Coffee, all of those are going to be in the notes uh, for this podcast episode. So you can go there and click on those and learn more about everything that he is talking about. Ben, my friend, uh, thanks so much for being on the Changing Faith podcast with us. Big fan of the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, brother. And thank all of you once again for joining with us for another episode of the Changing Faith podcast. My hope is that we would continue to learn and trust that we are not alone because we are already fully and totally embraced by the God who is love. So thank you again to Ben for being with us and thank you for joining with us for another episode of the Changing Faith podcast. That is it for today. And so until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.